This is transmission seven of seven. My final transmission. Sent five years after the bomb was dropped on New York. My name is L, and this is what I saw. If the objective is to use radioactive material in order to kill as many people as possible, it is far more likely that a dirty bomb would be implemented. These bombs use small-scale explosives or aerosol devices that disperse nuclear material silently into the surrounding area. Unlike nuclear fission bombs, dirty bombs aren't associated with a bright flash of light, high winds, or heat. And remember, in the case of an emergency, it is vital to discern between what is a real danger and what is not. Page 100 of the Atomic Survival Guide. We've been in the Bronx for a few years, and we're dying. I felt a new lump in my left boob today. Large and out of nowhere, it seems determined to outsize all the other lumps. I found the first one about six months after we got here. Then they sprang up all over my body, and Don's body. We ignored them because there's not much we can do. But now, five years out, we feel sick almost constantly weak, constantly. We've aged at an impressive rate over the last few years, aches and pains my grandmother used to complain of. But at least Don and I got to grow old together. Dr. Hubert wasn't as close to the explosion. He was up in his Westchester house, and he's faring considerably well compared to us. He's found only one mass so far in his armpit, and to be honest, I think it's probably just a cyst, but it makes him feel included. I picture the three of us as cranky old people in the near future, three senior citizens fighting at the dinner table about who will have to bury whom when the time comes. I hope I go first. The never-ending exhaustion has started to wear me down. I feel like I've put up a good fight. I deserve to rest. My only reason to stay alive is Don, waking up next to him, eating meals with him, looking into his eyes that have stayed the same exact hazel. Cheesy, I know. But if you're really lucky, someday you'll see. Dr. Hubert could go first, though. I would be able to go on without him. Besides, he's technically the oldest member of her little clan, of course, I'd never tell him this. I'm not a monster. But I know that if Don goes before I do, Dr. Hubert will be saddled with the responsibility of digging two graves. It was so beautiful the night we arrived here. A deep silence had settled over the Bronx. The sun had started to round into its five o'clock corner and it cast long shadows behind us as we walked along the zoo. A gazelle leapt across the road in front of us and then headed right down towards Moores Park Avenue, same way as us. Apparently, no one had thought to evacuate the zoo along with everything else. With the people who had once caged them gone, the wild animals with weak fences ran freely through the streets. During our early days during grad school, a cobra had escaped from the zoo. The cobra had then created a Twitter account to let the world know about its personal beef with Samuel L. Jackson, 
complained about snake discrimination and spread rumors that it was blending in with the snakes at the Natural History Museum, standing perfectly still until one of the children would get a little too close. We laughed about this as we walked past the zoo, until we realized that the same snake was likely out on the town once again. Luckily, we made it to campus without any unpleasant animal encounters, but Don swears to this day that he heard a lion roar from a rooftop. The campus of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine was as deserted as the rest of the Bronx. The hospitals around campus were deserted. The research buildings were deserted. The same plaques that warned us of high radiation levels hung at every entrance. We walked past the looming buildings, our boots quiet on the concrete path, the only humans in town. The Starbucks still stood across the street. The new deli that had just opened was still there, still advertising menthol cigarettes and cheap gallons of milk in its windows. Three towers loomed in the courtyard, student housing. We had lived in the tower in 1925, all the way on the top floor. For no reason other than that we didn't know where else to go, we started to ascend the stairs to our old room. When we got there, we finagled the door open with a metro card we'd found in the staircase. It opened on the first try, like always. The new owners had changed the decor as much as is possible in a one-bedroom apartment. There was only one bookshelf to our three, and a real dining table stood in the living room. There was no TV, not that it mattered. The kitchen was decked out in terms of kitchenware. A blender, food processor, slow cooker, all shiny, all new, all wedding registry staples. The couple who had moved in after us must have just gotten married. There were some cans of food in the shelves, and we added our small supply from the camp. Down the hall was our old bedroom. I slowly pushed the door open like it was sacred. It was nice. Pictures of the happy couple still hung in the frames above the dresser and on the nightstands. It was like they had left without packing, like they'd run out for coffee or were at class. Their clothes still hung in the closets, untouched. What do you think happened to them? Don asked as I pulled the hem of a dress towards me, yellow and bright between my fingers. I don't know. I replied and let go of the light fabric. The bed was incredibly soft. Spooning each other amidst real pillows under a real blanket, it was the best sleep of our lives. When I woke that first morning, I could smell coffee. For a split second, I thought I was back in grad school, and Don was making me coffee just like he had every morning. Then I remembered it all, and I wrapped myself into the sheets of strangers, and I lied perfectly still, concentrating, trying to unremember. The smell of coffee grew stronger, and I could feel Don's weight on the mattress beside me. Let's pretend, he said, just for a little while. I turned over and held out my hands to take the mug from him. Some days weren't so bad. The gas hadn't run out and we could cook on the stove, but we knew that this was a temporary luxury. All the apartments were easily opened with credit or metro cards, and during the day, we explored the stunted lives of the vanished students of Tower 1925. If we had been here just a few years later, we would have known where they had ended up. We would have been them. 
It was a very quiet, simple life. We cooked simple meals, played music on an old battery-powered radio. We danced in the courtyard. We drank the liquor left behind, and we laughed a lot. We built a giant library from the books that we recovered from the unlived in living rooms and abandoned bedside tables. The second day, we'd climbed up to the roof. It was a glorious day, hot but windy. It felt like an adventure. We had climbed up on that roof for most Fourth of Julys to watch the fireworks, or when there was an eclipse or meteor shower. My hair whipped against my face, and Dawn's curls bent in the breeze. We started to look around, trying to figure out what was going on in the world around us. We'd found a set of binoculars in our neighbor's apartment and were taking turns peering out towards Manhattan to the south and up north towards New Rochelle and Mount Vernon, away from the city. Manhattan lay as dormant as we remembered it, but up north something was happening. There were military jeeps and tanks, lots of little dots in evergreen uniforms, uniforms we didn't recognize. From what we saw through those bifocals, we only figured out one thing. We were stuck in the Bronx, unless we wanted to take our chances with an unknown army, quite possibly the very same army that had dropped the bomb. We never spoke of leaving. Our simple life continued. Lazy days spent reading in our living room. When we stayed inside the apartment, we could pretend that it was just a few years earlier that we had cut class to hang out. Life had given us lemons, and we were making nuclear lemonade. Aren't you glad we hung around for the day after? I teased Don over dinner. He smiled back and then joked about early retirement. It wasn't what we thought our lives would be, but it was enough. We made love everywhere during those early days. It's like we knew even then that we were running out of time at a quickened pace, like we knew our young bodies would betray us much, much sooner than was originally intended. After we got bored of looking at strangers' apartments, we started to explore the hospitals around campus. We started with Jacoby and then moved on to Weiler. We accumulated stockpiles of drugs, and if it hadn't been for the expiration date drawing dangerously close, we could have run an entire hospital or at least a pharmacy. Instead, we did a lot of drugs. Then, one day, out of nowhere, I ran into Dr. Hubert on my way to check on my disastrous vegetable patch that I'd started growing behind one of the other towers. There he was, out of nowhere, an old man kneeling on top of the dirt I'd loosened the day before, seemingly perplexed by this development. In his defense, he probably thought much like we did, that he was alone. "'Who are you?' I asked, and the old man almost toppled over. Then, indignant, as if I had disturbed him during a very important task, he replied, "'I live here, and I am checking the potatoes.' He had a thick accent, and was pointing at 1935, the tower across from ours. "'Well, we live here, too.' I pointed to our tower. "'Ah, I see.' He seemed rather blasé about the whole thing and was taking the whole encounter in stride. But I was so unused to seeing people other than Don that I couldn't stop staring. There was a moment of silence. The old man asked, "'What are you doing here?' "'My husband and I went to school here.' 
This seemed to soften him, open the floodgates of conversation. Oh, that's excellent news. So you know physics, then. I'm Dr. Hubert, and I too am a physicist. I've come here to continue my work, to make the world better. He started to tell me about the various projects he'd started since arriving, and how perplexed he was that he seemed to only be able to locate machines you would expect to find in a biology lab. I explained that it was actually more of a medical school. This he found very illuminating. Soon I was roped into many of his projects, becoming the bridge between the machines he didn't understand and his theories on unraveling the mysteries of time travel. That is how this started, this idea of sound time travel. He thought we could build something that reorients and speeds up sound waves in such a way that they can bore through time. Honestly, I'm not sure I really get any of it, but I enjoy the work. Don helps out sometimes, though his current goal is to catch up on all the books he never got to read during his medical training. He is hell-bent on reading all the Russians before he dies, and a lot of the Americans, and every World War II book he can get his hands on. I hold out hope that he'll succeed. As we are suspended in our drawn-out state of dying, the world around us has been swallowed up by the life of other creatures, and it's quite glorious. My vegetable garden, finally successful, has spilled out and overgrown most of the once barren courtyard. Cucumbers and tomatoes and potatoes are popping up in places nowhere near the seeds I planted. I am worried the pet rabbit population that has invaded the area might destroy them, but it will all just balance out again once I'm gone. My garden will either thrive or it will die along with me. Dr. Hubert has stayed in the tower across from us. I think he wants to give us our privacy. But he comes over for dinner every night after we spend our day scouring the old buildings, and Don has usually burnt something for dinner, book in hand, as he absentmindedly stirs the sauce. My mind is starting to bend in bad ways, and my memories are fading, especially since the headache started. In my head, we are always eating spaghetti and red sauce for dinner, and in truth, this is what we eat about three nights a week. At dinner, we talk openly about what happened. The only time we let ourselves feel what has happened to us, the impact of this new reality. We hypothesize over who did it, why, how. I'm not sure this theorizing ever really makes us feel any better, this time out from the denial we allow ourselves to live in during the rest of our day. But somehow it makes it okay that this really is the end. It doesn't really matter if we figure out what really happened five years ago. For the three of us, the end is right around the corner. It happened. And neither then nor now can we stop it. Unless this works, of course. And you do your part. This is what I take away from that day and from our miraculous survival to this day today. We left the worst behind to find another place that is killing us slowly. And even though I am endlessly grateful that we get to die in peace, we do not live in a place of peace. We get to live here because the air is poison. Because we chose a quarantine zone and a short life over a jail cell and a long one. We will not die in a peaceful place, just a peaceful state of mind. I don't know why what happened happened. 
I just know that it did, because I was there. I believe it to be unthinkable. An unthinkable act of whoever looked at that flight plan and said, Bombs away. There is a special place in hell reserved for you. And then there is this thought I can't shake, because none of it makes sense. The spectacle of it, a mushroom cloud suspended across your sky, the panic such a thing creates. What was the purpose of creating such panic? Of course, I have no way of confirming my suspicions. Even though I have a feeling the soldiers in their evergreen uniforms could tell me, I'll never know the truth. This is as far north as I am willing to travel. I hope these transmissions find you well. I hope that somehow you can stop it. See past the smoke and mirrors and the noise and stop the worst from happening. I hope I never had to send these.